to take up your Bibles. We're going to read from Exodus chapter 15, uh, verses 1 to 21. You can find this on page 72 on the church Bibles uh, in front of you. Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 to 21. Exodus 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword, and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hands, and the earth swallowed them. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. Until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, the horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. This is God's word, and we thank him for this reading of his word. Do take up your Bibles again, if you would, for our New Testament reading, which is taken from the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 15. In the middle of this vision of the Apostle John, Revelation 15, we hear all the strains of the same song that we've just had read from Exodus 15. So, Revelation chapter 15, verses 1 to 4. John says, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image, and over the number of his name. 
they held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is God's word, and we thank him for this reading of his word. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Our Father God, we thank you for how your Spirit has breathed out the Scriptures of the Old and the New Testament, and we pray that you would give us ears and eyes to see and to hear and to obey, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My job this morning is to teach us the lyrics of a very old song. It's the first song recorded in Scripture. And today we're going to follow along with the words. We're going to think about the refrain, the repetition, the things that we see in this song. I want to teach us the lyrics of this very old song. But why? Why do we need to do that? Isn't it just chapter 15 of Exodus putting in song form what we had last week in story form? Can't we just move straight on to chapter 16? You know, like the person that uh, we once met who was describing how they really enjoyed the books of J.R.R. Tolkien and, the, you know, these big meaty books, The Lord of the Rings. And they said, well, the only way I got through it, actually, was by skipping all those long, tiresome poems and all the verse bits and just sticking with the story. Can't we do the same thing? Isn't this just in poetry form what we've had in chapter 14 in prose form? Well, one clue that that can't be the case came from our New Testament reading. So it came from the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, and it turned out that at the very end of Scripture, the song of Moses and of the Lamb there is being sung in heaven, and it has to do with the whole world, and it was a version of this song. All the strains of Exodus 15 could be heard in that song in Revelation 15. So Exodus 15, this song that was coined just after the crossing of the Red Sea, It might have been coined for a moment, but it's sung for all ages, says Revelation 15. And the deep reason why we need Exodus chapter 15 is because God uses this song, and He does this again and again with songs in Scripture. God uses this song to give us a special glimpse of who He is, not just now, but for all time. Songs are some of his favorite moments in Scripture to reveal who he is and what it means. So God doesn't just tell us what happened at the Red Sea. He's going to tell us now, in a special way in this song, what it means and why it matters for us. And so if we come to this song, let's come expecting to see God for who he is. And as we look hard, we'll see ourselves in this song. We'll see our futures, even our far futures, all in this song. So, as we come to it, it divides neatly. So, verses 1 to 3, there's an introduction. Uh, Verses 19 to 21 is like a a conclusion, and this is like a frame or the bookends of the song, okay? Um, And we're going to spend most of our time in the two parts of the song itself, um, verses 4 to 12, and then verses 13 to 18. 
But just briefly for that introduction and conclusion, that frame, it tells us something really important about this song. We could sum it up like this. It's saying, sing to the warrior Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. If you looked up this song in the the Hebrew hymnal, uh, you'd look it up and its title would be this. You'd find it under this. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he threw into the sea. That's its title. It's insipid. And you see verse 1, those are the first lines you get. This is what Miriam sang, also accompanied in verse 21. You see they're the same words. Sing to the Lord, he's triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. So it's the same song that Miriam's singing. We just get the title of it um, in verse 21. But this is telling us something actually really important. It's giving away what kind of song this is. It's a victory song sung to and about a warrior. Do you remember um, in our Bibles after David famously beats Goliath and he comes back from the battle, he and the other Israelite commanders and also Saul, and there he's coming back, this conquering, victorious warrior, and do you remember what happens? Women come out and they meet them coming back from the battle. You can read about this in 1 Samuel 18. And there's the warriors coming back, and the women come and they sing a victory song. And remember, it was a bit controversial because they sing, you know, Saul slain his thousands, but David has slain and struck down his ten thousands. But you see, that's what they were doing, and that's what Miriam and the other women are doing here. They're singing a song to and about a conquering warrior returning from a victorious battle. So who's the warrior? It's not Moses. It's the Lord. Verse 3, do you see it says, the Lord is a warrior. So the first thing we know after the crossing of the Red Sea in chapter 14 that we didn't know before and that the world didn't know, the kind of word we wouldn't have used to describe the Lord, but which we must now, is that he's a warrior. We're not used to speaking in those terms, but verse 3 says the Lord is a warrior. But as we come now into the song, we discover that this is no ordinary victory, and this is no ordinary warrior. So verses 4 to 12, um, come with me and see that his power in victory is like no other. And the reason is because he is in himself like no other. A victory like no other reveals God, who is like no other, beyond comparison. Let's come through then to the verses, verse 4. Pharaoh's war chariots and his army he hurled into the sea. This is a good title for the song. These are good words to put in the title because the Lord hurled the greatest ancient war machine that the, the ancient world knew into the sea. Pharaoh and his war machine, his chariots and their horses, his elite officers, his captains. Look at them now in slow motion as they sink in the Red Sea. The abysses covered them, verse 4. The officers, the best captains, the choice commanders, they went down into the depths like a stone, motionless and inert, passive and helpless. How did he do it? Verse 6, by your right hands. Of course, we know warriors have right hands by the right hand of a warrior, but let's look and see. 
let's look and see what this right hand's like. What does it look like? We can't see it. But what is the Lord's right hand? It is His glorious power. Or His right hand is seen in shattered enemies. It's no ordinary right hand. Verse 7, you overthrow your adversaries. Literally, you tore down the ones that were rising up against you. But how did he do it? Verse 7, by the greatness of his majesty. I, I understand those words. You and I understand those words. He tore down those who were rising up against him. We understand all the words in that sentence, but we've never seen someone do this and achieve a victory just by the greatness of their majesty, simply by being himself. He, he is a fell and fearsome warrior just by turning his character towards and against his enemies. He overthrows them by the greatness of his majesty. Okay, we're in the midst of lots of water, you can tell in this song, for understandable reasons, but now we get fire and wind and it's the hot anger of the Lord, end of verse 7. He sent out His fury, and it consumed them like stubble, okay? So now it's not water, but it's a fire devouring a crop, leaving only stubble. That's what the Lord's anger is like. And then we get His weapons, and we think, well, what weapons did the warrior use that we can imagine flashing, glinting in the middle of a battle, in the heat of battle, and we look, verses 8 to 10. What are His weapons? He musters his army, which are the floods. He makes them, verse 8, stand to attention. They flow in all sorts of different directions. They're boiling, but he makes them stand in a heap. They congeal the abysses in the midst of the sea. They thicken. They harden. They become a wall. Instead of flowing, they become a wall. And then, now with these waters raised up like two walls, we are told and given a little window into the inner thoughts of the enemy. Do you see we get a little inner monologue of the proud rider of Egypt? He sees this highway to victory, and there he is in his chariot, driving on, and it's breathless. I'll pursue, I'll overtake, I'll divide the plunder, I'll get my fill of them, I'll draw my sword, my hand will destroy them. I, 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 I'll do this. And then verse 10, you blew. One verb, one word, one breath, and the flood walls flood over the Egyptians and cover them. And they sink down like lead at slow motion, sinking still like a stone through the mighty waters. What's happened now to all their, I'll pursue, I'll overtake, I'll plunder? Watch them now, silence, and sinking through the deep all the way down to the gates of the dead. And then the climax of the song comes in verse 11. What do we make of this power and victory that is like no other victory? Verse 11 tells us it's like no other because it's telling us not just something that happened, but something that is, someone who is. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Who is like you? In other words, none is like you. 
you are beyond comparison. You are beyond parallel. There isn't a category in which you sit. Now, this is in Scripture. We're in the second book, and this is the the first big moment where the Lord displays publicly in front of the nations and even in front of His own people when He stretches out His great arm of salvation and shows that He is in Himself like no other. And if we just pause for a moment and think what verse 11 means, it means that the world in which you and I live, it's not a religious marketplace. It's not a religious marketplace. The, the Lord is beyond compare. The Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, the God of these scriptures, is like no other. There is not a category into which you can put him. The world is not a religious marketplace. Nor is the world like a league table, you know, where you can think, well, you know, uh, this idea or this belief, you know, it's more or it's, it's better or it's worse than that one, and it's all, it's all relative to the other. You know, there's a sort of comparison that you can make. The world is not a league table of beliefs and ideas. The Lord is beyond comparison. He has no parallel, and He has no competitor. So, do you see that His power and victory, you see how He shatters His enemies just by being Himself? Which means that our world also is not a great competition or battle whose end is in doubt. History is not some great story where we're not sure what the ending is. His power and victory is like no other. He shatters his enemies. They cannot resist him. So, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name, but he's a warrior like no other. The Lord is beyond comparison. And he tells us by what he did, who he is, and what he's always like. Now, before we go on, um, I want us just to pause and reflect for a moment about how a, a chapter like this and how verses like this in Scripture reason about God, how they take us from A to B, how they reason from the things that happened at the Red Sea to what God is really like. And God does this again and again through Scripture, and I want us to just step aside, as it were, for a moment and just watch how the Lord leads us by the hands to His character, which is beyond parallel. And He does it um, in wonderful ways, and one of them is that He gives us familiar things to lead us into a true knowledge of His uniqueness, of how He is beyond comparison. But He begins with familiar things, things we've got a category for. So, He gives us a, a warrior. We know what a warrior is. He speaks of victory. We know what victory is. He speaks of a right arm. We've got a category for a right arm. But then as we look at what comes beside them, as we look at what comes next, we find that he bursts these categories, and he leads us by the hand to show us that this right arm actually is like no other we have ever come across. It's like nothing we have a parallel for. So, God leads us by the hand by familiar things to show us his incomparable, beyond parallel character. The other thing that he, he's doing here is he, he helps us to follow a variety of qualities and attributes 
but actually to teach us that he is them. He is them. They're not a, a jumble. They're not a contradiction. He is um, his character, his power, his majesty, his glory. He, he simply is. So, for example, if we say, how did God kill the Egyptians? Which quality did he use? Was it his power? Verse 6, it says his power. Was it his power? But then it also says his glory, verse 6. So was it his glory or was it his power? Or verse 7, was it his greatness? Maybe it was his greatness. That's how he killed the Egyptians. But then verse 7 also says majesty. Was it his majesty? So was it his power, his glory, his greatness, or his majesty? But then verse 11 says his holiness. Was it his holiness? So we've got his power, we've got his glory, we've got his greatness, his majesty, his holiness. These are not different bits of God. They're not different weapons he wields. God piles up all these attributes of his to show us that this is simply who he is. He is power. He is majesty. He is holiness. He is glory. He simply is these things. It means that he doesn't just have them the way you or I might pick something up for a time, but it's not really who we are. God is these things. And so, follow those variety of attributes, and it leads us to who God is. But the, the big thing that I want us to hang on to from this um, section in 4 to 12 is God actually is revealing in what He does about who He is. So, His mighty acts and deeds, they reveal, they uncover, they tell us who He is. So, it's not just that the exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea was a past fact, but that it reveals who God's in Himself always is. Well, let's move on. Let's um, reflect now on verses 13 to 18, because we need to think, actually, what does this great moment, this great climax of God teaching us about, about Himself mean for us, His people, for the church? Because in verses 4 to 12, the people of God aren't mentioned. Israel aren't really mentioned. The church isn't there. We're, we're not mentioned at all. So, what does it actually mean for us? We'll come to verses 13 to 18, where we see that all this power and victory against his enemies is actually for his people. His power and victory is like no other to guide his people to his sanctuary. Uh, I don't know if you noticed when verses 13 to 18 was being read, there was something strange and puzzling we had been at the banks of the Red Sea, and then we ended up being taken all the way to Canaan, to the habitation in Canaan. Uh, the enemies, we were thinking, they were the Egyptians, the horse and his rider, those are Egyptians. And then we started finding in verse 14 that we were talking about Philistines and Philistia, Edomites, verse 15, Moabites, verse 15, and then the end of verse 15, all the inhabitants of Canaan. I thought we were in Egypt, the enemies were Egyptians. Now the enemies are all the nations around Canaan. Well, what's going on here is that this song, now in verses 13 to 18, tells us to look at it almost like looking through a telescope into the far future. So it brings that far future into the here and now. Even talking, if you've got a different translation of verse 13, in the past tense, you have led, you have redeemed, bringing the future right into the present. The whole journey to Canaan, the promised land, has been brought forward. As if you could look into this song and you could see the future generations pass through your eyes, pass before your eyes. 
Have we left the Red Sea behind? No. Verse 16. Take a look at verse 16. Talking about these other nations, it says, terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. Greatness of your arm, the same arm that the Lord outstretched to make his people pass, they are still as a stone. These nations, Moab, Philistia, the Canaanites, they're all still as a stone, but where have we last heard that? It's of the Egyptians sinking down in the waters. Same arm, same result with the enemies, and then till your people pass by. But they're not passing through the Red Sea now. They're passing through that whole journey through the wilderness, across the, the River Jordan, and into the land of Canaan to sanctuary, to habitation, to the Lord's holy abode. And the point is that all the future generations are like a crossing of the Red Sea. The Lord's arm outstretched stretches all the way into their future and ours. It stretches all the way to Canaan. The dread that He causes to fall on His enemies falls on all those who stand between them and the promised land. In other words, His power to save in Exodus 14 is also His power to keep us His people, to cause us to persevere. His power to save means safe passage for all of us through the wilderness world. So, let's think for uh, just a few moments in just three small ways um, what this means for us. The first thing is that His power and victory, it is for you, His people. The, the beautiful thing about being in covenant with God is that this God of verses 4 to 12 tethers Himself, binds Himself to us for our good. All His power and victory is for us then. He makes it for us. You can see this in the way that the language suddenly changes in verse 13. Unfailing love, steadfast love. That's language between God and His people. The same power, the same strength, but it's all to guide His people safely. The warrior image has changed to that of a shepherd leading His people to safe pasture. The warrior is a shepherd, but it's the same God. And what, what is the point is that He guides us to safety. He shows us His steadfast love. He bestows it on us. He gives us safe passage by being a fierce and fell warrior to His enemies. Like a good father, okay, who will fight to protect his children, or like a good shepherd who will fight a fierce lion and be a warrior to that lion in order to give his sheep safe pasture. Um, so, the Lord says here that all his power and victory is in order to guide his people to safe sanctuary. His power and victory is not raw power out there. It is at the disposal of his people. It is for us. Um, the second thing is that his power and victory has already secured your safety in his sanctuary. The, the Lord has brought the future right into the present. 
on the banks of the Red Sea. So that before they set off, and we'll see that there's all sorts of false starts as they set off into the wilderness, all sorts of feelings of God's people, but before they set off, the Lord has already told them and us how the story goes. It ends with safe sanctuary, in victory. What do the people do in verses 13 to 18? What do they do? Nothing. They're passive. They pass by, they pass over. The Lord's power in victory secures their safety in His sanctuary. So, I don't know what fixed point in the future your anxious thoughts light on. As you look into the distance, as you think about the future, as you muse on that, what your anxious thoughts light on. But can you fold them into this truth? Can you take them captive and see that actually here, the Lord says to us that His mighty arm stretches ahead of you and your fears. His mighty arm reaches all the way into your future, even your far future. And He says, my power and victory has already guaranteed your safety and your sanctuary. In the new heavens and the new earth, in rich pasture, in safety with God and His people. So, before they set out into the wilderness, the church in the wilderness in Exodus could look into this song and they could see their end was already secure. And the same is true of us. The church in a wilderness world and passing through to the new heavens and the new earth, led on and guided by God. We can look into this song and we can see that our end is already secure and safe. Finally then, uh, one more thing to see in verses 13 to 18. His power and victory, it's not just power for His people. It's not just saying that our end is secure and already safe, but His power and victory means that all the nations must fear Him. If you wanted to say, what's in common with all these nations and what happens to them uh, in verses 14 and 15? It's that they're all quaking. It's all palpable. They're shaking. They're quivering. They're trembling. They're melting away. They're still as a stone. They're under a great dread and fear. After the Exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea, it became famous all through up into the northern counties, up into the, amongst the Canaanites. This victory, um, the crossing of the Red Sea, became famous. So much so that when the spies went into Jericho, do you remember Rahab, the prostitute, met them? And what did she say? She said, the fear of you has fallen upon us. All the inhabitants melt away. Same word, they melt away. Because we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and our hearts melted before you. Because this God, the He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. In other words, exactly what God says in this song happened to those Canaanites in Jericho. But what did Rahab do? Rahab the Canaanite, she swapped sides. She swapped sides. She acknowledged the Lord and His people, and her and her family were kept safe. And it was kind of like a first single fruit falling from a tree. But it shows us that God's purpose was always that the nations would come and worship. We see particularly um, the 
fierce dread and the fear that falls on them. But we also see in people like Rahab that actually that fear is also going to turn to the fear of worship. And we saw that right at the end of Revelation. Revelation 15, that song of Moses and the Lamb. All the nations must worship you. Who would not fear you, given who you are, O Lord? God's great purpose is that the nations will fear Him and glorify His name. And so, in this song in Exodus 15, we see not only our future, but we see the future of our world and of our nations. And it is that all nations will come and worship the Lord because He is beyond compare, for His righteous acts have been revealed. Let's bow our heads and pray.